Two passages. The first one would be from Mark and the second one from John. So if you can turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. And it is in page 887 of your church Bibles. So Mark, so Mark chapter, chapter 1, 1 verses 16 to 20. 20. As, As he, he passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. I'll get you to turn to that. John chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and the two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast a net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello everybody. It is good to be with you again and thank you to all of those people that welcomed me again today. Uh, I was chatting to Jono about what he would like me to preach about with you today and he said you've just come off the end of a fairly tough and heavy sermon series and so he said pick something that's just going to kind of hopefully encourage everybody and so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about one of the disciples and look a little bit at their life and what that person was like and so to start us off I thought let's start with a little challenge let's see if you can name all of the disciples so why don't you start calling out to me and I might actually cross these off as we go because I'm not very good at this myself why don't we see how many of the disciples of Jesus you can remember so start calling out some names to me who have we got what disciples are there Matthew yes Luke, yeah, that, 
Sorry, I might have to go a bit, bit slower, one at a time. I'm struggling to hear. So we've got Matthew. Who was next? Judas. Judas. Okay, Judas, yes. There's, ah, there are two Judases, aren't there? And it's a bit confusing because in one of the Gospels, the other Judas is called Thaddeus. So that's a good one. Well done there. All right, who else have we got? John is there, yes. Peter, yes, who's also called Simon, well done. Andrew, very well done. Nathaniel, who said Nathaniel? Oh, good, not many people get Nathaniel, well done. And Nathaniel's also called Bartholomew. So that's one that most people forget. Good, who else have we got? We've got one, two, three, four, five to go. John, we've already done John, I think. Yeah, we've already done John, but yes. Are you pointing at your head? What's that mean? Oh, Philip. <laughs> All right. Okay, Philip, well done. Who else have we got? Thomas, yes, Thomas, well done. Three to go. James, did someone say, I think someone said James, yes. And the last two are tricks, because there's another James, so that's the other James, there's two Jameses, and then we've got another Simon, who's kind of called Simon the crazy guy, Simon the zealot, who was a, like a political activist. So there you go. I didn't think you'd get them all. You did very, very well. Um, now, you know that among the three the, the five, the 12 disciples, there are the big three. Who are the big three? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. And these are the three most famous disciples, except for Judas. Um, he might be the most famous of all, but not for the good reasons. But they're the big three. And among those three famous disciples is one very special disciple. And this disciple is often called the disciple Jesus loved. The disciple Jesus loved. And that's John, isn't it? Now, I don't know this fella, but... His name's Jay from the name tag. Now imagine if we all knew that everybody here, Jesus loves all of you, doesn't he? But Jesus really loves Jay. Jay is the disciple Jesus loved. He really loved Jay. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about why did Jay, or in this case John, Sorry for embarrassing you, but not sorry, okay? Um, so why was John so special? And what did Jesus love about John that was so unique so that everybody knew that John, well, he's the disciple Jesus loved and we know that he loved all of us and we know that you kind of were all his disciples, but John, he's the disciple Jesus loved. I want that said about me, don't you? I would want people to be able to say that about me. Now, that's probably not actually happening right now. But what we want to do today is we want to look at it, well, I wonder why Jesus loved John so much. Because whatever those things are, those are the things that I want for my life. Whatever that thing is, I want that for my life. And we want to try and figure out what John had. 
so that we can have that. And the first time that we see John is in the book of Mark, which was read earlier for us. So thank you very much for reading that for us. And we read that he was walking by the Sea of Galilee and some of the fellows were fishing and he calls them and they followed him. And you notice that when Jesus calls them, it says they straight away left their nets. Does that ever seem a little bit strange to you? That always seemed a little bit strange to me. Straight away they left their nets without even thinking. What, were they having a big argument with their dad that day who was the owner of the business? Why, why did they just take off? And what would their dad think? He just lost his most valuable workers, his partners in the business, the future of the company. They're just gone. Why did they leave so suddenly? Well, probably the answer is that it wasn't actually that sudden. They probably already knew Jesus. Um, did you know that James and John were Jesus' cousins? They knew Jesus already. How do we know that James and John were Jesus' cousins? Now, some people dispute this, but I kind of think it adds up. At the cross, when Jesus died, there were four women who stayed close to Jesus. There were the three Marys, Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene, and what one of the Gospels calls the other Mary, okay? So there were the three Marys plus one other woman. Now, Matthew, Mark and John all, recalled, all record that this other woman was there. But each of those describes the fourth woman in a slightly different way, which is great because between all of the different descriptions, we learn a little bit about her. In Mark chapter 15, verse 40, we learn her name, which is Salome. In John chapter 19, verse 25, we learn her connection to Jesus. It says that this woman, Salome, is the sister of Jesus' mother. So Mary's sister, Jesus' auntie. So Salome, Jesus' auntie, is there. And then in Matthew chapter 27, verse 56, we get a little bit of extra information and it says that she was the mother of James and John, Zebedee's sons. So now, assuming that these two sons of Zebedee were from Salome, that it wasn't from some other lady who died or something like that, we can assume that Salome was married to Zebedee. So, Zebedee and Salome were the auntie and uncle of Jesus because Salome was Mary's sister. You follow that? Now, this is really interesting because it means that Jesus, James and John were cousins and they probably grew up knowing each other. They probably played together at family gatherings. Uh, if James and John knew Jesus, then almost certainly Andrew and Peter did as well. Peter, James, John and Andrew were probably close friends. Now you say, well, how do I know that? We've just kind of made this new thing that their cousins had. How do we know that he knew those guys? Well, if you listen to the reading that we had a little bit earlier in verse 19, at first he calls two of the guys, he calls and, and he says, hey, come follow me, that's the cousins. And then it says, when he had gone a little further, he then saw James and John. 
So it wasn't that he went a long way to find... No, no, no. He said when they'd gone a little further. Now, what we know about the people who used to fish along the banks of the, Ga- of the Sea of Galilee, you know, it's kind of territorial. You've got your own areas, don't you? You've got your fishing spot. Some people uh, would fish by casting nets. Other people would fish by having boats. Other people who didn't have as much money just cast one line. There were different ways of doing it. But there's only so much space. And Jesus said, and what it said, when Jesus went a little further, he didn't have to go very far to pick up the second lot of disciples. So probably these people knew each other. They saw each other every day while they were fishing. They, these kids had grown up together. They were friends. So Jesus probably knew all four of these guys. He knew the cousins and he'd met the cousins' friends when he'd been over there having sleepovers or something or other. So as an adult, we see Jesus preparing to start his ministry and he starts by spending 40 days in the wilderness, praying and fasting and during those 40 days of praying and fasting, right at the top of the list of the things that he's praying and fasting and talking to God about, right at the top of the list, what do you think it is? At the top of the list is, who's going to help me start this ministry? Who's going to lead the church in the future? And the answer is, people he can trust people who had already proved they would support him, starting with his four friends, Peter, James, John and Andrew. Now, there's a really important lesson we can learn from this and the lesson that we learn is that God is watching your life a long time before he calls you into ministry. Long, long, long before God calls you to do anything special with him, he's already been watching you you want to do something special with your life maybe in the future well then know that he's watching you now in the present there's a lot of people that kind of think well I'm going to go to Bible college or I'm going to become a minister I'm going to start this ministry so I better clean up my life no that's not how it works God's watching you before the ministry starts before the calling happens when I was at Bible college it was quite easy to notice that at Bible college there were two types of students at Bible college There were those who were volunteering in the church while they were studying and there were those who were not. Some Bible college students, they used to say, I'm not going to volunteer at the church, I'm not going to get involved in the church because I need to focus on my study right now. And then after I've finished my study, then I'm going to graduate and then when I'm fully prepared, that's when I'll get involved in ministry and somebody will send me a letter asking me to become a pastor. Others would get fully involved in the ministry. They would often be swamped. They had no time for anything else. Their grades would suffer. They would struggle to get assignments in on time. The lecturers would always be telling them off. Then sometimes the lecturers would say, you're never going to be a pastor because you can't even get an assignment in on time. What's going to happen on a Sunday morning if your sermon's not ready? They're not going to give you an extension on the sermon. They'd say all those kinds of things. But you know what I noticed? Those guys were the ones who became pastors. The ones who were focused on the study generally didn't go into ministry. Why? Because God's watching you now. He's watching you long before he calls you and God looks around and says, wow, look at that person, they're volunteering in the music ministry or look at that person, they've got a great heart, they care for people, they make the teas and the coffees. And he says, I can do something with that person. Now you may never want to become a pastor and that's okay. I'm not a pastor anymore either. But... God's still watching your life and he wants to call you into a ministry. 
And God is not just watching you. Your boss is probably watching you as well at work, aren't they? And if you're the boss, well, you know that you're watching people as well, aren't you? You're looking for a person to do a job. Who are you going to ask? Where are you going to start? Well, you're not just going to Google somebody. You're going to start with, well, who's already doing a great job in my business? Who's been doing a great job for a long time? They're the first people you're going to look at. And if if a person is doing a great job in a low position, then they'll probably also do a great job in a higher position. What matters is character and teachability and the work ethic and all those things. And for years, Jesus was watching these men, watching how they treat their dads, who was their boss. Did they listen to dad? Did they learn from dad? Or are they just disrespectful and always talking back to dad? Maybe Jesus had been on a few fishing trips with them, watching how they treated him as a rookie fisherman because he didn't know anything about fishing. Because if they treat the kind of guests, the rookie fishermen, if they treat that person badly, well, that says a lot about how they're going to treat new Christians later on, isn't it? And so after 40 days in the wilderness and fasting, he wanders down to the beach and he says to them, remember how over the years I've talked to you a little bit about what you want to do with your life and what I'm going to do with my life, why don't you join me? Come on, let's go change the world together. And off they go. And so Jesus kind of does the same thing with us. He says, you want to make a difference in the world? You want to change the world? Well, how are you going at changing nappies right now? You want to fix problems in the world? Well, Jesus says, sure, how are you dealing with the problems that you have in your family or the problems that you're having at work? And it's really interesting that some of the people who shout the loudest about solving the world's problems really struggle with the small problems that are right in front of them, don't they? Sometimes the people that are shouting the loudest about solving the world's problems actually are the problem, aren't they? I want to help with hundreds of people and I want... People to get to know, love God more and more. Hundreds, I want a big congregation. Great. How are you doing with one or two people in your small group? I want to be a counsellor. I want to lead a big pastoral care ministry. I want to care for people in the church and help their faith. Great. How are you doing at listening to your wife when she comes home from work each day? How patient are you at listening to the kids or the grandkids when they've got a problem or they fall over and hurt their knee? Because if you can't be patient with that, you're not going to be patient with the people in the church's pastoral care ministry. Let's start with those little things and see how we go before we move into the bigger things. That's what Jesus is looking at. And you might have heard the old saying that the best indicator of future behaviour is past behaviour. That's true. There's an ad on the radio. I think just about every investment ad that they put on at the end of the ad, they say, come to us, we've got, we've got a great track record of great performance in investments. And then at the end they say, past performance is not an indicator of future performance. Yes, it is. I'm not going to go to a, an investment fund that's got a terrible track record. I'm going to go to one that looks like it's been doing better. And it's the same thing with all of us in our lives, isn't it? The best indicator of future behaviour is your past behaviour. And if you can't show up on time with a positive attitude and a smile on your face when you've got little pressure, how are you going to do it when you've got big pressure? God is watching now. How are we doing with what we have now? If we're doing really well with a little, he's going to give us a lot. 
And so the number one reason why Jesus loved John is because he knew his track record. He had grown up knowing he could trust this guy. He'd been watching his character for a long time and he loved the character that he saw in there. The number two reason why Jesus loved John is really simple. John was a great bloke. He was a good friend. John was easy to like. You could sum it up this way. John was nice. Now, that's not rocket science, is it? But it's so important. When I was a chaplain in a school, sometimes the principal of the school would call me into the office and would just talk to me. And I don't know why he wanted to talk to me. He would just talk about stuff. Maybe because he couldn't talk to the teachers. And sometimes he would just talk to me about the most random stuff. But one of the things that he said to me, I've never forgotten it. I, would ask, I went to the office one time, we were having a chat, he'd just done some interviews for some new teachers and I said to him, how did the interviews go? What is the new person like? How do you choose a good teacher? And this is what he said to me, he said, Simon, they've all got amazing resumes. They all have the right qualifications. But this one, they were nice. And nice goes a long, long way. That's how he chose his teachers. He said, who do I want on my team? I want the nice one. Because they've all got good qualifications. And John was like that. John was nice. John was a great bloke and Jesus liked him and they were great friends. And everyone knew that John was Jesus' closest friend. And we see that in the stories. At the Last Supper, all of the disciples were gathered to share what would turn out to be Jesus' last meal before he went to the cross. And Jesus said, someone's going to betray me. And the disciples are wondering, who is it? And they're too scared to ask. And so they kind of motion to John. You're his closest, mate. You do it. You ask him. And the Bible says at that moment, John happened to be kind of leaning up against Jesus. It's kind of leaning up against him like you do on the couch and they were really close and John doesn't have to move, he just quietly asks Jesus, which one is it? And Jesus tells him it's Judas. And then later that night after dinner Jesus went to the garden to pray and he knew about everything that's coming, he knew about the whipping, about the bashings, about the cross, about the nails, he knows his friends are going to abandon him, he's deeply troubled And in that moment, he goes off by himself, but he's feeling low, so he wants some friends to come with him, and guess who he chooses? John. John's the kind of person that Jesus wanted to have around when you really need a friend. That's why Jesus loved him, because he was nice, because he was a good friend. So if we want to be the kind of person that Jesus loves, it's not complicated. We've got to be the kind of person that has good character, a good track record that he can trust. But then we just need to be nice. We need to be nice to the people around us. That's the kind of person Jesus loves. And then the third reason John was the disciple Jesus loved is because he was very, very, very loyal. The night that the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, all of the disciples ran away. But Peter had the courage to come back and to follow from a distance. And he goes to the courthouse and he waits all night to see what happens. 
And so Peter did really well. All the disciples ran away. Peter must have taken off and come back. Followed at a distance, waited outside the courthouse and it was only when people suspect that he was with Jesus that he gets a bit overcome with scared and thinks they're going to kill me too. And so he denies Jesus and the rooster crows and you know that whole story and we all remember people, Peter, that he's loud and gets himself noticed and we remember that he, uh, when he fell into the water, when he should have been walking on the water and we remember that he denied Jesus when he shouldn't have been doing that and all of those things. But Peter did really well. He got as far as the courthouse when all the others ran away and fled but there was another disciple there as well that we don't usually think about too much. This disciple stayed right to the end. This disciple did not deny Jesus when the rooster crowed. It was John. In John chapter 18, verse 15, we see that John stayed by Jesus' side all the way through to the end. We assume that John must have had some kind of friend because Peter didn't get into the courthouse, but John got inside and was there all the way to the end he was there through the trial he was there in the court case he was there in the beatings he got in and he didn't leave jesus by himself he was through the procession in the streets all the way to the cross and he is the only one of the 12 disciples who is actually named as being there when jesus died and the other disciples were probably around and all of that, but they're not named. John got into the courthouse, didn't deny Jesus, stayed with him all the way to the cross so that when people were writing the history down, they said, oh, John was right there. Jesus loved John because John was loyal. And as Jesus is about to die, he looks down and he sees his best friend. The disciple who Jesus loved, who's been with him the whole way. And he sees his best friend standing next to his mum, Mary. And Jesus says, John, can you look after my mum for me? Isn't that something you would say to a friend? Look after my mum for me. And after all of that, Jesus is raised from the dead and he meets the disciples a number of times, goes back to heaven and Peter and James and John, it's up to them to leave, lead the church and John moves to Ephesus, he starts uh, to lead the new church there, starts churches all over the, around the Mediterranean, so much that he's known as John the Evangelist and while this is happening over the years, one by one, all the rest of the disciples get killed and we could go through the list, it goes through how every single one of the disciples was killed except for John. And then John, the disciple that Jesus loved, is the only one that's left and he's an old man and he's exiled on an island called Patmos and there he writes three letters. 1 John, 2 John and 3 John, which you have in your Bible. He also receives a vision from Jesus, the book of Revelation, which you have in your Bible and he sees the Lord and his best friend in heaven with the angels and the sea of glass and the vision of him as a king and his best friend is now... The king. 
And so as we get to the end of his life there, we see, well, that's the story of John. Three reasons why John was so special to Jesus. But above and beyond those three things we just spoke about, I think there's one more thing that might be more important than any of the others. And if this one thing is all that there is, I think this probably would still be the reason why John was the one that Jesus loved. And we see it in the second reading that we had earlier today, in John chapter 21. And in that story, as usual, we focus our attention on Peter. Peter's the one that jumps out of the boat, leaves all the other guys in the boat to kind of bring all the nets in and bring the boat to shore. And Peter just kind of takes off and swims to Jesus. And there are reasons why he does that and Peter had some private things that he had to deal with after denying Jesus and all of that. But Peter is the one we normally focus on there. Just the same as Peter is the one we normally focus on when the court case is happening and he denies Jesus and all of that. But something that's really important to notice is that just like in all those other stories... John's doing something there that we normally don't notice very much. John's the one who recognised who Jesus was. They were a fair way from shore, just loud enough that they could just hear Jesus calling out to them across the water. Caught any fish? No, I haven't caught any fish. Who's this crazy guy? What's he telling us to do? It wasn't Peter who recognised that it was Jesus. It was John. None of the other disciples in the boat recognised it was Jesus. It was John who could recognise Jesus from a long way away. And I think this probably tells us most of all why John was the disciple Jesus loved. He just knew Jesus really, really well. And that's it. It's that simple. John knew Jesus so well that he could recognise him when nobody else could. It's nothing brilliant. It's nothing profound. It's a very simple thing. And in life it's often the simple things that are the most important, aren't they? And that's what we see here. Earlier we spoke about how Jesus and John lived near each other and they kind of probably spent Hanukkah and all those kinds of things together and their families spent time together and as little boys they played on the beach together, they probably built sandcastles together, they would have wrestled in the water, they probably dunked each other a few times and as they grew older they were sailing and they were fishing and doing all those kinds of things that families would do and that's how John recognised Jesus when no one else could. And that's great news for us because if you want to be a person that Jesus loves, it's very, very simple. Just spend lots and lots of time with him. That's it. Nothing more complicated than that. Now, you might be thinking, well, hang on. Jesus and John were cousins. I can't spend as much time as Jesus and John did. Actually, you're wrong. This is the best news of all. John was only a cousin. Jesus says that he wants to be your brother. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
including being closer than a cousin because he says he chose us to be adopted as sons, children of God. God has chosen you to be adopted as a child, which means that you can be more than Jesus' cousin, you can be Jesus' brother or sister. Jesus wants to be your brother and he wants to live in the same house with you. He wants to see you every day. Jesus and John didn't see each other every day. They just saw each other at kind of family holidays because they didn't live in the same town. Jesus wants to see you for breakfast, for afternoon tea. That's more than John ever got. But it gets even better in John chapter 15, verse 15. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know the master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Jesus wants you to be family, closer family than what John was, but he also wants you to be his friend. And that's an amazing thought. Now, you might be asking, well, how do I do that? Well, the answer is really about what your prayer life looks like. See, most people think about prayer as asking for things, but that's not what prayer is supposed to be. Prayer is not supposed to be us asking God for stuff. No one likes it when someone only comes to see them when they want something. I've got a family member like that. Only time they come to my house or call me up is when they want something. We're not great friends. I accept the call because they're family, but you know what they're after. And some people treat prayer like that. That's not what prayer is supposed to be. If you want to get to know Jesus, when you pray, instead of for asking for things all the time, why not say, Jesus, what do you want to tell me today? I'm listening, not talking. You tell me what you want to tell me. And that little simple change will probably revolutionise your prayer life. Because when prayer becomes listening rather than talking, it's a whole different thing. One of my friends is a fellow called Richard Kobakian. He's the pastor of a great church here in Melbourne. And he talks about this being the difference between seeking God's hands and seeking God's face. The Bible talks about this person sought God's face, that person sought God's face. We tend to seek God's hands. God, do something for me. Fix up something for me. Do something. No, 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 no. Get to know God. Seek his face. Let's stop asking God's hands to do stuff for us and let's start looking for God's face. Just getting to know him. That's what John did. And that's how you become a disciple that Jesus loves. And so as you think about those things, if you want some prayer, uh, the people will be waiting over here for you to pray with you. And also, as we listen to some music, some things are going to happen with the service and while that music happens, the offering will be taken up as well.